Welcome to TopCast episode 26, Preface. I'll do another introduction very shortly, but I'm in a park and we're going to be switching in between me being outside in the lovely park in the sun and inside in my house. And I'll explain why that is later on. Um, on the way to the walking to the park, I was listening to the most recent episode of the uh, Waking Up podcast. No, does he call it Waking Up anymore? Making Sense podcast with Sam Harris. And he was speaking to his friend, Paul Bloom. And of course, they were talking about COVID-19. And I'll be talking a little bit about that today as well from what I would say is a Popperian perspective. But we'll see how we go with that. Um, Sam there was talking about, in part, uh, weighing the cost of human life. And he was saying that one of the issues we have right now is weighing the cost of human life in terms of how open and free our society should be versus being concerned about how many people will die from COVID-19. And he compared this, he made an analogy to uh, an aeroplane and getting onto an aeroplane. He was saying that we weigh the cost of checking and rechecking all the systems on the aeroplane. We weigh that against, you know, how careful we are in checking those systems against the cost of human lives. And in his words, he said he checked and rechecked everything in such a way, or people could check and recheck everything in such a way as to guarantee that everyone would survive the plane flight. So if we, we could charge a million dollars per plane ticket, if we were willing to check things to such a precision, such that we were sure we could guarantee that everyone would survive the plane trip. Now, of course, this struck me as utterly fallacious. Uh, again, this is another example where people who can profess to be fallibilists reveal that in fact they are far from being a fallibilist. Sam thinks that it's possible to guarantee, if we were to spend enough money, that everyone would survive plane flights, that a plane could be made impervious to error. But this is not possible. Our knowledge is limited, it's finite. It cannot cover every possible problem. And so systems can fail in ways that we did not foresee. It wouldn't matter if you checked and rechecked and rechecked and rechecked every single bolt and wing and computer system and line of code that controls and keeps an aircraft in flight. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter because things unforeseen can still bring down an aircraft and even the things foreseen could still occur. For example, we might very well foresee that a thunderstorm could be a danger to an aircraft. So we might devise systems such that an aircraft moving through a thunderstorm, uh, in all the ways that we know, would survive the thunderstorm. But again, this would be no guarantee. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. What does this have to do with COVID-19? What it has to do with COVID-19 is, there seems to be an insinuation in what Sam says and what many people say right now, that if we were to lock everyone inside for an indefinite period, then we would guarantee that COVID-19 would not kill that many people. But to what do we attribute all the deaths of keeping people inside? Namely, if people were kept inside and they lose their job and then they can't feed themselves, or if people are kept inside and become depressed and commit suicide, if people are kept inside and fall over and no one notices, because normally they'd be going to work and someone would notice if they're not there. But if they fall down the stairs and they're stuck inside and then no one notices that they are not turning up to work, then those people die. Do we attribute those deaths to COVID-19? Not directly, of course, but indirectly. And this is a great concern of mine right now, is how many indirect deaths are being caused by COVID-19 because of our response to COVID-19? And to what extent will this calculation be done and to what extent will we be able to assess the size of the error bars on this calculation as well? It's a grim calculation to make. So when we are talking about guaranteeing who survives and who perhaps 
So when we are talking about deaths due to known problems such as COVID-19, we have to take into account the unforeseen deaths due to the purported solutions that we have. A solution, a solution to a problem is a circumstance in which the outcome of that solution results in a better series of problems, namely less harms, than what the problem otherwise would have caused. One could have a purported solution which in fact exacerbates the problem, exacerbates the harms. I can certainly imagine ways in which we could solve the COVID-19 problem and yet make things all the more worse. For example, a vaccine, a vaccine which is not properly tested. Let's say we had a vaccine which was perfectly, 100% effective against COVID-19. And if we could inject the entire population with this, we would eradicate COVID-19. Imagine we had that sort of perfect knowledge. Then yes, we would solve the problem of COVID-19. But what if the ultimate death rate of COVID-19 turns out to be 1%, which it seems to be something like that. Maybe a little bit above, maybe a little bit below. We don't know, there's a lot of unknowns here. But let's say the case fatality rate of COVID-19 was 1%. But we eradicate it through the use of the vaccine. Have we solved the problem? Well, that depends. We may very well have created a vaccine which has side effects such that 2% of all people who get the vaccine are killed. In which case we have exacerbated the problem by a factor of two. That is not a solution. It is not a solution. It's an exacerbation of the original problem. Because if we correctly define the problem, the problem is how do we stop people dying of this new situation, this new circumstance we find ourselves in. And the way we do it is by eradicating COVID-19, but not by any means necessary. And this seems to be lost in the debate, I think, sometimes. Um, I wrote a few other notes about what um, Sam was saying. And, and, and indeed, I think that this, this idea of putting a price on human life all the time is not actually what's going on. And, and indeed, Sam and Paul, in their discussion, were very focused on monetary value, but I think that's the wrong lens. It's not the way to think about it. Um, we don't tend to choose to think in terms of the, the, the cost of people's individual lives, but rather, when we're thinking about something like whether or not to take a trip on an aeroplane, when we think about choosing whether or not to fly, whether or not to take a trip on an aeroplane, we're not thinking in terms of the cost of our lives. And I don't think the airlines are thinking in costs of human lives either. But rather, it's about the airlines, the aircraft manufacturers, doing the, their utmost to create a safe aircraft, using all the best available knowledge. And then us as individuals, using our best available knowledge to assess the risk in some sort of grey, nebulous way, and deciding, based upon our own personal circumstance, whether or not to take the aircraft flight. Um, for example, I would not take North Korean Airways anywhere. I'd, 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 I'd tend to fly Qantas where I can and avoid certain other airlines based on what the known risk of flying on those aircraft is. And the known risk is based upon how well people have assessed the maintenance, for example, on those aircraft. So it's not about costs. I think this analysis in terms of costs of life is quite wrong. And there's something telling when they speak, they speak in terms of a we, that we have calculated the cost of a human life to be this or that. And so they were talking very much about people in the developing world. They were saying that we have decided that the value of their lives is less. But I don't know who they're talking about. Who is this we? It kind of reeks of an old style colonial paternalism as though people in the developing world cannot know or cannot learn about risk and therefore must be saved by us. It's that very impulse that calls on people to pool their resource and, ha and have, you know, put, put all their money together and have a committee of philosopher kings or politicians and decide how best to allocate our resources. As though there are some common pool of wealth and resources to be allocated in such a way. But this is all backwards. 
It is the philosophy that exacerbates and does not solve our most pressing problems. It's the individual who knows their circumstance best. They are best placed to decide. When we step in, we tend to get it wrong. Now, Sam is well placed to know this, and I admire Sam greatly. But uh, when he tends to talk about utilitarianism, he tends to take on a kind of paternalistic concern for those deemed less wealthy or less knowledgeable. Now, he had a podcast years ago with the philosopher Will McCaskill. He's an effective altruist philosopher. And he made a very interesting, he made a very interesting observation about something called the play pump. Now, the play pump was this device that was invented by, a, created by a company, created by a well-meaning person to help uh, women in African villages extract water more efficiently from the ground. Well, in fact, what he noticed was that in certain African villages, older women used these old pumps that were very difficult to use and they had to use a lot of strength, a lot of arm strength and a lot of energy in order to extract the water out of the ground by pumping this pump, this very old style pump that's been around for hundreds of years. And a well-meaning Western person, a person of some engineering understanding, decided they would invent a pump which was kind of like a merry-go-round for children. If the children got onto the merry-go-round and pushed it around and played, then, then they'd have fun being on the, the merry-go-round and as the merry-go-round span, it would extract water, it would pump water out of the ground. And he thought this was a wonderful idea, and so his company produced them and installed them in African villages. Sounds like a great idea. Everyone wins. The African women who normally get the water out of the ground and have to carry it back to the village, they no longer have to do that hard work. They can be doing something else. The children get something because now they have a new toy to play on, and they get the water out of the ground just by playing. Everyone wins. So what could possibly go wrong? Just about everything. The playground equipment, this new merry-go-round, the play pump, was not attractive to the kids. The kids simply did not want to use it. It was not as good as the original pump. The kids didn't use it and so then what happened? Well then the women in the villages had to then get on this piece of playground equipment with a, an extreme loss of dignity and used a piece of playground equipment to get the water out of the ground. But it got water out of the ground more inefficiently than what the original pump did. Why did this happen? Because well-meaning people thought they knew better than the actual people on the ground who were not consulted. Should the people on the ground be consulted? Yes, but it has to be done in a certain way. If you frame, of course, the problem um, with the people, now you, I could imagine these people being consulted. I could imagine these people being consulted in such a way that they would be led to believe that this would be best for them as well. So there's consulting and then there's consulting. Whatever the case, the point here is that we cannot know what is best for other individuals in their circumstance. And this doesn't just apply to wealthy, intelligent people in the Western world, thinking they know better for people in the developing world. It also applies to you and your neighbours. You don't know what's best for your neighbours. The politicians do not necessarily know what's best for you. And it is for this reason that we need to be able to solve problems at a local level and at an individual level. That's the lesson of the play pump. That's the lesson time and time again. And it's the lesson now. I'll come to it, but I'll just um, bell the cat to a certain extent here now and say the choice is not as uh, I've been hearing recently and I just heard Sam say to Paul Bloom the choice is not between our complete lockdown of society and utter carelessness this very black and white thinking that I heard seemed bizarre to me both Paul and Sam seem to agree that the only alternative to the situation that's happening now in most countries in the Western world was carelessness and ignorance and callousness on the part of people who were against the lockdown. But isn't there a very reasonable grey scale between locking everything down and enforcing that 
through the use of state force by the police and ensuring people don't leave their houses and something more akin to what the South Koreans did. I think in the future, moving forward, everyone will have to do what the South Koreans knew to do. And I emphasise knew to do. They understood the problem because they'd encountered something similar before. Why we didn't already know the lessons they learned, I don't know. But it should be a source of outrage for people against not just the politicians, but the people advising the politicians. Everyone knows about chief medical officers now these days. <laughs> There's chief medical officers here in Australia. Why didn't the chief medical officer immediately have access to the knowledge of the South Koreans? What was the bias there? If it had have been the United Kingdom that had encountered the MERS virus or the SARS number one virus and had have responded in the way South Korea did, then Australia absolutely would have known what to, have, what to do because we would have been consulting with our colleagues in the United Kingdom. What did South Korea do? South Korea, as soon as the outbreak of COVID-19 began to happen in a place called Daegu, I was just there at the beginning of last year. The solution there for Daegu and for Seoul, and Seoul in particular, this vast metropolis, was not shut down. Despite the fact the outbreak was happening in South Korea, it was not shut down. What South Korea did was what is now well known, it would seem to me. What they did was test widely upon the finding of someone being found positive for the test, they isolated that person. They then traced their movements and located people they'd been in contact with. And this can be done electronically via apps. Now I'm not saying that the entire government needs to surveil people continuously. But when an outbreak like this happens, people could voluntarily open up an app on their phone such that the government can monitor their movements for the purpose of trying to track where they've been if they end up being testing positive. This is a happy middle ground. It's voluntary. It is where people, well, if, you, if you're found to be, of course, positive, then it's not voluntary. Then you're isolated. Sorry about that, but you're a danger. There's very little else in libertarianism or, or, or in politics broadly comparable to a situation where a particular person is found to be dangerous. Perhaps something like a, I don't know, a severe mental illness of a kind, schizophrenia which causes people to have violent outbursts. Then those people need to be confined, possibly against their will, until such time as it can be demonstrated that they are no longer a threat to society. Even a libertarian, an extreme libertarian, must agree with that. A violent person, perhaps unable to control their own behaviour, needs to be confined until such time as we can demonstrate that they are no longer a threat to the community. This is an analogous situation. If infected with COVID-19, regardless of your age, once tested positive, then you will need to be isolated from the community. And whoever you came in contact with needs to be regarded as a threat as well. That's unfortunate. And a large number of people will be imprisoned for a short amount of time and not in a prison but in their own homes so they have all the comforts of their home and not for months at a time but for weeks until such time as the experts say you're no longer um, infectious but this does not require the shutdown of all of society and it also does not require that people infected go out and callously behave as if nothing is wrong it's a happy middle ground. And there are many middle grounds indeed between these that one might discuss. But I was just taken by the fact that it seemed to me that a straw man version of anti-lockdown people was being presented by Sam. Uh, and just on this, uh, I've been having discussions with people recently about the difference between uh, principle and practice when it comes to what libertarianism is. And I don't really know the difference between uh, what's this classical liberal, uh, libertarian, uh, anarchist to some extent, capitalist. But my own view of politics is essentially that there are ideals out there that we need to strive for. There's, there's, there's ideal justice. There, there is a form of um, justice that we should work towards. Do we have ideal justice in society? No. No. But should we work towards ideal justice? Absolutely. 
Should we upend all of society in order to try and remedy the injustices that are out there now, have a revolution so that we can have a form of perfect justice? Absolutely not. We should incrementally move towards better forms of justice in society while maintaining the integrity of our institutions that guard against injustices as we know them right now. Now, why would we want to preserve our institutions? Why not have absolute freedom or anarchy? Even if absolute freedom and anarchy of the form where no one gets to tell you what to do, no authority gets to tell you what to do, even if that is an ideal, even if that is the moral position, there should be no coercion in society. Why can't we get there tomorrow? Well, precisely because we don't know how. What we need to value is progress, the solving of problems, the creation of knowledge. Our society, and not other societies, by which I mean the Enlightenment, the West, is the society where we have progress, we have change, at a rate faster than any other time in human history. But it is progress and change that happens with stability, not with revolution. Revolution causes anti-stability, and then it can end up in stasis. So what we have right now is stability under great change, as David Deutsch talks about. A dynamic society. What has enabled this dynamic society? Well, we can talk about many, many things that we do know of that enable this dynamic society. But there are many, many things that we do not know about what ensures that this dynamic society remains stable over time. And because we do not know all of all of these things, all of the factors that go into ensuring stability, we have to preserve the society as it is largely until we figure out better ways, until we can incrementally change aspects of our society in terms of its institutions so that we can continue to have flourishing without the whole thing falling apart. So institutions like police, for example, a single police force, at the moment, is the best way we understand to respond to violence that's in society. Ideally, would it be better if we didn't have a single police force? Yes, I think ideally it would be. But we have no clue about how to get there. If we have competing police forces, then that's a recipe for violence. When one police force makes a claim on another, poli uh, another um, police force. Or if you think you're aggrieved from one police force, then you go to the other police force. If you've made an agreement with the first police force, what stops you from going to the second police force and saying, the agreement I had with that first police force was invalid and I want you to remedy this. In a society ruled utterly by reason and without coercion, then we wouldn't need police forces of any kind because no one would ever tend to try and apply force to anyone else. But that's not the circumstance that we find ourselves in. The circumstance we find ourselves in is somewhere between the chaos of the primitive past and the complete and utter peace of the enlightened, very, very distant future. So this is why, um, in speaking to people recently, I've described myself as ideally an extreme libertarian, but in practice, some kind of incrementalist who believes in the institutions as they are, but believes they can be improved, and slowly the power of the state dissolved, very slowly. Because at the moment, we can see, and now is a prime example of where there has been overreach by the state, and there have been errors made by the state. And although I can't prophesy the future, my own intuition is that months and years from now, looking back upon this, it will seem glaringly obvious in retrospect that politicians failed to consult the relevant experts. The politicians did not listen to the best ideas that were available at the time. There are always unknowns. But what was known was that shutting down the economy for this period of time caused massive amounts of distress. And at the moment, we don't have a calculation of what that is. I'm concerned that if it goes on for too much longer, or that indeed every day that it goes on, that the lockdown of 2020, the global lockdown of 2020, will be seen in retrospect as something akin to the Great Depression.
that it didn't really need to happen in the way that it did. That if we had have looked at a country like South Korea, then we could have implemented policies like that, such that not all of these people were lining up out of outside unemployment offices, that people weren't losing their businesses and livelihoods, that people weren't dying of all the other causes because they weren't getting the usual medical tests, they weren't undertaking the usual so-called elective surgeries, uh, they weren't um, just going through the... That all of the fallout from government errors with the best intentions of trying to prevent COVID-19 deaths didn't cause more deaths. Moving forward, we have to have a different approach to this. It cannot be full and utter lockdown and it cannot be callous disregard for the best scientific advice, which is that this thing is contagious, this thing will kill people, you need to socially distance, you need to wash your hands, etc. All of those sensible things. But at the extreme end, imprisoning people for a long, long time, is no solution. I say this as I'm walking around inside of a park, by the way. <laughs> so we're not exactly imprisoned. Um, and, and, and there is a, as Brendan O'Neill um, from Spiked Online has said, uh, quite eloquently, there is a class divide and a class factor in this. Now, I'm, I'm quite comfortable. Um, I, I have a comfortable house and I have a, 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 a access to, to parks where I know that police won't be around. Um, so I'm kind of breaking the rules in being outside today and recording a podcast. This is probably against the law. I think we're allowed to go outside for, for essential things. Okay, and this is not an essential thing. <laughs> so I'm doing the wrong thing. Um, but I know that police don't hang out in the area where I am. But as Brendan O'Neill was saying, the people that are saying that anyone who steps outside, um, yeah, people who are saying that, that, that anyone else who goes outside their house and, and violates these rules that have been imposed, especially in places like the United Kingdom, I think to some extent the United States and in Australia, I can speak mainly to Australia. Uh, Brendan O'Neill calls them curtain twitches. This is, a, this is a great problem for cohesiveness in society because it's the relatively well-off who have large backyards, gardens that they can go outside in, large houses where they can possibly um, be distant from other family members, are the ones most upset by other people breaking the rules. What about the single person in a small flat somewhere who has no garden, who doesn't have a car, who needs to get their groceries, not on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis, because they can't carry their entire weekly groceries home, especially if they live a long way from the store, and who is really going stir crazy being kept inside of a small flat. Why aren't they allowed to walk around inside of a park? Well, they should be, and yet they're the ones that are being unfairly targeted by police at the moment. And we've seen this in Australia, people going to beaches uh, many metres from anyone else. Almost empty beaches and yet being told off by police. And we saw this in Great Britain. People wandering in fields miles from anyone else on their own being told off by police. This is irrational. This is utterly irrational. And most of the government response, most, I say most, much of the government response is on a continuum with that. Overreach based upon not good science uh, or poor science and a, a desperate desire to try and solve a problem that we haven't adequately defined yet. We don't know all the parameters. We don't know how infectious and how deadly it is. We know it is quite infectious and quite deadly. Okay, so that's enough for now. I'll return now to the podcast I recorded inside. Welcome to TopCast episode 26 for one of those episodes where I'm not primarily speaking about the beginning of infinity. Uh, I was doing quite well there with the rate at which I was putting out episodes on the multiverse chapter of the beginning of infinity. However, with the corona crisis, my studio where I would normally do the work in order to produce the podcast has been requisitioned due to the corona crisis as a home office. And so my microphone and my green screen and all the usual stuff that I use in order to produce the podcast has been put away temporarily until such time as we're no longer locked down. 
When that's over, then the multiverse series will continue and conclude and we'll move on to the next chapter of Beginning of Infinity. But I thought I'd put out something today just to talk about, well, the corona crisis from the perspective of myself as a Papirian and as someone who leans towards the libertarian side of politics. And as well to talk about a few other issues related to the intersection, as I see it, between knowledge production, wealth creation, and problem solving. And so I'm going to try and cover some of those topics today. Don't worry, we'll be returning to the usual schedule of things as soon as possible, as soon as our uh, masters in the government allow us to return to our usual work. We're all trying to adapt. I'm attempting to adapt and sometimes unsuccessfully. So I thought I'd begin with something that I've written about before, which is about how wealth is created and its association with knowledge creation and how these two things work together in order to enable us to solve our most pressing problems. Now, in particular, of course, David Deutsch has spoken about how, and this is one of his most famous TED Talks, he's talked about how there are aspects to the universe which people think are finite, but in fact, on investigation, are probably infinite, or at least unlimited for all practical purposes. So let's take, for example, something like matter. Matter appears to be limited because if we look around our universe, the overwhelming majority of the universe appears to be an empty void. Of course, there's matter here on the Earth, but the Earth is a rather unusual place compared to the rest of the universe. David speaks about this very eloquently in one of his TED Talks, where the, the, the planet Earth used to be thought of as being the center of all of existence. And this was the religious notion of the Earth as the center of the cosmos, about which everything else rotated. And then the scientific perspective came along and we realized that the Earth wasn't at the center, it wasn't even at the center of the solar system, let alone the rest of the universe. So the Earth was relegated to a non-special place in existence. Now we can see that the Earth is somewhat special in the sense that it is a hub of knowledge creation. That here, and not anywhere else that we know of, problems are being solved and an endless stream of knowledge is being produced. And this knowledge appears to be produced continuously, and it's continuously solving our problems. On the other hand, people have a view that something like resources are finite, and we have to be very careful with our use of resources lest they run out, and lest we damage the rest of the planet through our use of these resources. The view that one gets from reading David Deutsch is that it's the opposite to the prevailing wisdom on these two issues. That in fact, although we have this endless stream of knowledge creation and it is continuously being created, it may not be being created fast enough. That problems that we encounter could overwhelm us. And we're seeing this right now with the corona crisis. The concern appears to be right now that we have a problem and the rate at which the problem was causing serious issues, death and illness, was outpacing our capacity to problem solve. The rate at which we're producing knowledge about this particular problem is too slow. We want it to go faster than what it is. So in fact, knowledge creation, although a continuous stream, has a certain rate at which it occurs, and sometimes that rate is too slow. On the other hand, although the prevailing wisdom about resources is that the resources are limited, David makes the, the amazing point that all we need to do is to go into intergalactic space, where, for all intents and purposes, it appears to be a completely and utterly vacuum, completely and utterly a void, a vacuum, devoid of matter, that in fact there, are, there is material out there. As low density as it is, there is the odd hydrogen atom out there. And if you could gather up this hydrogen, um, you know, a, a, a cube the size of the solar system, I think David said, that within that cube, the size of the solar system, you would have enough matter to build a space station. And the space station would be able to be powered by transmutation, a similar process to what goes on inside the sun. And so resources are not 
as limited as people think. But more importantly than the fact that they're not limited is the fact that what is thought of as a resource is not a mere matter of digging material out of the ground or collecting it from outer space. It's a matter of knowing how to take that matter and to use it in order to create energy, in order to create media upon which we can record our knowledge and so forth. A resource is material which is useful given some knowledge. For a long time, the, 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 the ore, the mineral called pitchblend, was thought to be a rather useless rock. It took time for us to realise that there was this material called uranium within that pitchblend, and moreover, that the uranium could be used and purified in such a way that it could be put inside of a nuclear reactor and from it, electricity via a complicated process extracted. Things are resources only in the light of what we know about them. Things are resources given what we understand about the properties of materials. And that requires knowledge. That requires us to understand the universe in which we find ourselves more and more. Now I might read a little part of what I've written on this um, before. So forgive my, forgive my sudden shift in tone here and there. Um, I'm not referring to notes and then I am referring to notes and now I'm about to refer to some notes. And what I've written previously on this is that so far as we know, people here on Earth may be the only things in the universe looking out on the rest of it and attempting to form theories about it. That is, we may be the only place in the universe where knowledge of the universe has been created. As David Deutsch has pointed out, both in his talks and his books, this place and no other place is a special hub. In one respect, we are the outer suburbs of a typical galaxy among hundreds of billions, but on the other, we are a central hub of knowledge creation, which contains an increasingly high resolution explanatory reflection of the whole of the rest of the universe and all of its contents from the smallest to the larger scales. When we think of the word home, do we think of our personal residence only? Do we think of our own town or nation? Do we think of our planet? All of these would be needlessly narrow ways of conceiving of our place in the cosmos, for our home in truth is the universe. The whole universe is the environment we find ourselves in. Our residence, along with the rest of the civilization, is our bulwark against the rest of the environment around us, which is terribly hostile, both to us and every other life form on this planet. And of course, we've seen this very recently. This planet Earth that people call our home, our fragile home, is in fact a dangerously hostile place. Natural disasters happen, have to be, have to, we, have to continue, we have to expect that they will continue to happen. Whether it be a virus for which we have no cure, and this one, by the way, seems to be a, a reasonably mild one if you listen to what some virologists and epidemiologists are saying. You know, this R naught value, the number of possible people that you could infect if you are in fact, infected with this virus, this COVID-19 virus, has an R naught value of 2 to 2.5. And high though that is, it's nowhere near as high as what it could be. If it was 15, then almost the entire world would be at real danger of this. It wouldn't just be the older, more vulnerable people, because far more people would be getting it and so far more people would be dying. And the case fatality rate of this virus, high though it is, okay, the so-called CFR number, is somewhere hovering around the 1%. Depends on which expert you talk to. I've heard the great epidemiologist Michael Osterholm say that it, it could be higher than 1%. It could be 1.5 to 2%. That seems like a very high estimate because he's worried that the numerator, the number of people who die from this, is unknown that in fact a large number, larger number of people might have been dying in, let's say, Wuhan and other areas of China and simply never making it to hospital. He's heard stories that people were dying on the street and just never accounted for. So that number could be higher than what we know. But other people are saying, Amesha Dalja, let's say, um, who's another epidemiologist, he's saying that number might be far lower than 1% because we don't know the denominator as well 
as what people think. The number of people who have the virus in total, not the number of people who died. And so this case fatality rate is, of course, that top number, the number of people who died, divided by the bottom number, the number of people who actually have it. And he's saying that the denominator, and I've heard a lot of epidemiologists say this, there's a lot of people out there who are asymptomatic, not getting tested, nonetheless who have the virus, and so this bottom number could be anything up to 10 times greater than what we're hearing. Which would mean that the case fatality rate is not 1%, but 0.1%. Amesha Dalja was saying months ago that it was possibly around 0.6%. And at the moment that seems to be borne out, but of course this is the case fatality rate on average, and the case fatality rate on average isn't a very useful number for making personal decisions, because personal decisions about how dangerous this virus is for you depend upon the case fatality rate for people of your age and gender and level of health and that kind of thing. And there's a huge difference between whether you are under the age of about 15, 15 to about 30, 30 to 60 and above 60 and so on. I think we are all very familiar with what this means right now. And so I'll come back to this idea of um, assessing the risk personally yourself at some point later. For now, the relevance is um, for my discussion here, is that the earth is a terribly hostile place. And we've seen a wonderful example of this right now. Wonderful as in very illustrative of what I mean when I say the earth is not a friendly place. It's a hostile place. And we need to be concerned about all the ways in which it could cause us harm. And we need to figure out ways in which to protect ourselves from it. The earth is not out to get us, but it's not out to protect us either. Only we can protect ourselves. So as I was saying, our residence, insofar as we created ourselves, is the bulwark against the rest of the environment. And so we have to construct the universe around us to protect, protect ourselves from the rest of the hostile reality that's out there. Now, we may not be alone in the, in the entire universe, and we might yet discover that we share the cosmological environment with others, but we do not know about them yet. Whoever they are and whatever they might be, we can know little about them, yet we can constrain some of their properties. Whoever they are, they cannot transgress the laws of physics. And if they're capable of creating a civilization, then they possess one very special property that we do, the ability to uncover those physical laws that govern them as much as us and the rest of the universe. And so they, like we, can form ideas, especially in the form of technology, which make clever use of those laws to control the matter and energy within the universe so that we can do good work. Good work, which is absolutely vital to the survival of ourselves in the face of all sorts of evils found in an unfriendly universe. Evil, which we define as harmful problems we do not yet have solutions for. The good work that people do comes in many forms. We provide food to ourselves and each other, supporting more people in good health now than ever before. We build structures and protect, that protect us from this hostile environment. We are the only species to routinely attempt to protect the diversity of other species, often at great cost to ourselves, rather than viewing almost all other life forms as competition. We have flown free in a very large part from what our genes code for. Our minds think beyond our own mere self-interest. They can think and overcome these genetic desires with ease. Indeed, our minds can stretch the very limits of physical law. And within the abstract world of our imaginations, we can even easily exceed what physics allows us, what physics allows to occur in the physical world, to some extent. <laughs> we can't imagine things that are unimaginable given the laws of physics that we have. But we can certainly imagine transgressing certain laws of physics. Yet for all this infinite mental capacity that people possess, we encounter a continuous stream of threats to both our happiness and even our very existence. Sometimes we even need to protect ourselves against each other, and that requires us to make progress faster than those who would seek to do us harm. We find solutions to all manner of problems and in doing so, uncover new problems that are better to solve than the ones that went before. Think for example of the solution to what caused the disease that led to the solution of germ theory, which opened up the problem of how to kill germs, which led to the solution of antibiotics, which opens up the problem of how to combat resistant strains of bacteria, and so on and so it goes. When you solve one problem, that causes new, more interesting problems to be solved. Let's apply this to COVID-19. We have the problem right now 
of how to find a cure for the disease effectively. Now, the cure might come in the form eventually of a vaccine, or the cure might come in the form of a powerful antiviral, or the cure might come in the form of simply eradicating the virus by keeping everyone at home such that the virus literally dies out. The virus can't survive without being transmitted. Okay, so these things can be cures in one sense, means of causing the virus to no longer be a threat to ourselves. Now, let's say the vaccine solution appears 12 to 18 months from now. People keep mentioning this, this number. Well, what problems does that, end up, does that create? In trying to ensure that the people who get the vaccine don't suffer terrible side effects from the vaccine, some proportion may or should be expected to suffer bad consequences. But that is a better problem than having a vast number of people, a much larger number of people, dying from not having the vaccine. And once you solve the problem of how to prevent people from getting reactions against the vaccine, then you might employ different medicines that cause people to... Um, then you might have a different form of medicine that treats the side effects from the vaccine. But then those medicines themselves might cause even more minor side effects once taken. And so, so it goes. Each time you have a problem being solved, that solution will not be a solution that causes no other problems. It will simply cause problems that are less harmful. If they were to create problems that are more harmful, it is no solution. That's the difference between a solution and something that exacerbates a problem. In order to create any solution, obviously, we need to create more knowledge. But the creation of knowledge requires resources. The creation of knowledge, finding the solutions to our most pressing problems, requires us to transform matter from one form into another. The problem of how to keep warm requires us to take the raw material of cotton or fur and turn it into coats and socks, and it requires us to take energy from one place to create heat in another place, often by burning some otherwise useless material like dead wood or buried oil. To solve problems faster still, we increasingly need computers to do some of the laborious drudge work, and computers require energy too. That energy could come from the sun, but if you want to work at night, then you need to store that energy somehow. And that might take some fancy chemicals that require mining and more electricity and more fuel and more specialised equipment. And to make the whole cycle work better, one needs to make improvements to create knowledge again, which requires more resources and so on. The cycle of discover and gather resource to produce fuel and facilitate knowledge creation, to discover and gather new resources to improve the old, must continue indefinitely because almost any single resource is finite even if resources in general are infinite. As David Deutsch has observed in the beginning of infinity, nothing whatsoever is a resource until someone has the knowledge of how to use it. There are parts of the universe around us today that we walk past and regard as worthless, which at any moment some new piece of scientific knowledge could transform into a valuable commodity. A rock is just a useless rock until someone figures out how to get the minerals out of it. Years ago, I went to Bolivia and in Bolivia, there is a salt lake, and it's called the Salt Lake of Eugenie. And largely, it's a tourist attraction. Now, the Eugenie salt flats in Bolivia are about 11,000 square kilometres of salt lake. And for most of human history, this has been regarded as little more than a minor resource. It's got lots of salt there. I mean, so the locals would use it as literally to, to gather salt to season their food. But largely, it's been just seen as a pretty salt lake. It is, as far as the eye can see, a white, flat plain of salt covered in a little bit of water. But now, now, with knowledge, we've figured out that one of the best and lightest and most efficient ways of carrying energy in a portable fashion is to use a lithium battery. And lithium is in higher concentration in salt lakes than just about anywhere else. So Bolivia is sitting on not a gold mine, but a lithium mine. Bolivia itself has been called a pauper on a king's throne, unfortunately. It is an extremely poor country, rich with all kinds of natural resources. But for largely political reasons, 
the resources have gone unextracted from that country. And why? Well, in large part it is because the governments have rejected capitalism. They've refused to allow private companies to do extraction of their minerals and resources. This has the problem of leaving it to the government, but the government is inept, completely unable and lacking in the expertise to get this stuff out of the ground, not to mention the money. If they allowed private enterprise to go in there, then they would extract much more lithium than they're currently doing from the salt lakes. And so instead, happily for places like Australia and for China, we have private companies extracting lithium from our salt lakes and we're becoming wealthy by doing so. And a greater number of people are benefiting. Where in Bolivia, they're not doing that. They're hoping that one day they can figure out a way to nationalise the capacity to get the mineral out of the salt lake. One hopes that they manage to do this prior to the next invention that figures out a way of producing batteries which are even more efficient than lithium batteries and which do not use lithium. Lithium might not always be as valuable a resource as it is now. People need to move quickly when we find a resource and to exploit that resource as quickly as possible to fuel whatever energy source or supply line that needs to be fueled so that the problem that that resource solves can be exploited to enable us to solve yet more problems even faster. David Deutsch in chapter 17, Unsustainable at the Beginning of Infinity, recalls a personal example himself of how at university some decades ago, he was told by some experts in the field that the end of colour display screens, television display screens, was in sight. At that time, all the coloured screens of the cathode ray tube and um, in particular the red pixels. Okay, so in a cathode ray tube you have, what, a red pixel, you have a blue pixel, a yellow pixel, or a green pixel, I can't remember, there's three pixels anyway. <laughs> and one of them is a red pixel. And, and for this you can have colour television. The physics, in fact, is indisputable, that there is, in fact, only one element, it's called europium, which, when you pass electricity through it, glows red. And it's just by happenstance that this one element, when excited by electricity, produces just the right colour that you need for colour televisions. But europium is in terribly short supply. So europium is in terribly short supply. And so when it ran out, the manufacturers of cathode ray tubes would have no way to make red pixels. And if there's no red pixels, then there could be no colour screens. And it's true. No alternative element, even to today, has been shown to enable us to make pixels glow red by that process. Only europium can do it. But of course we've got red screens aplenty today. We've got colour screens that have got no problem showing red. And how? Well, not because we found a substitute for europium in cathode ray tubes, but rather, we don't use cathode ray tubes. We use plasma screens and LCDs. Now, I've got no idea what else europium is used for today, and the price of it could be up or down. But the point here is, we simply cannot predict what new discoveries in science will completely change a market. What is a scarce and valuable resource one day might become useless trash the next. So it went with europium, perhaps, and it may become that way with lithium and with coal, but we need not fix the markets ourselves. Science fixes the problem of what a resource is or is not and how the damage, if any, um, can be mitigated. Not economics. Okay, so I'm just going to pause here and head outside and make a few final remarks. Okay, so after a little break there, I'm back outside and I'm, and I'm going to continue with my discussion of resources and wealth and knowledge creation. So I was talking about the amount of lithium in Bolivia, a vast amount of lithium in Bolivia in the Salt Lake of Virginie, and at the moment that is not being exploited. Yet it could make Bolivia vastly more wealthy than what it currently is, but people are not exploiting it. People are not taking advantage of it. And yet if they brought in a private company, they could earn some money from that. Namely, uh, even, if, even if the money wasn't being given directly to the Bolivian government, presumably the workers that extract the salt from the lake would be Bolivian, they'd be locals, and they'd be earning more income. 
and they'd be spending more money in the community. And so this would make that nation more wealthy, even if it was something as simple as that. But it's not happening. It's not happening because the government is deciding that it shouldn't be done. And so meantime, Australia is getting more wealthy because it is exploiting its lithium. China is getting more wealthy because it's exploiting its lithium, but not Bolivia, who's remaining poor. Lithium is just one thing we need. We need lots of other things as well. And the Earth itself is finite, but the universe is not. The universe is literally infinite as far as we know, and it's growing, it's getting bigger. But it's hostile, just as our planet is hostile. Terribly so. There are dangers we know of. Disease and drought, storms and earthquakes, supernova and asteroids, gamma ray bursts and solar flares, viruses and bacteria. But perhaps worst of all, things we do not know about. Things we do not know about yet, and so cannot possibly even begin to prepare for. These are the problems that we should be worried about. The problems that we have not yet encountered, which are going to dwarf anything like COVID-19. Or tsunamis, or earthquakes. We're at the beginning of an infinity, and so we, so we should expect to be startled one quiet Tuesday afternoon by an event as astounding and inexplicable as, for example, the appearance of a supernova in the daytime sky was to the ancients. Now, happily, the cosmological events of the past, supernovas that appeared in the daytime sky, are relatively well understood. But nothing guarantees that there are not similar, strange and lethal phenomena lurking out there for which we have no explanation. Let me just tidy that up a bit. In the past, when supernova appeared in the sky, the ancients had absolutely no clue what they were. Happily, the supernova that they saw, for example in 1054 there was a supernova, were not dangerous to planet Earth. But now we know they are dangerous in principle. There appear to be no sky stars anywhere near us that will go supernova anytime soon. By soon I mean the next million years or so. I think there's something called Eta Carinae, but I think it's too far away to actually cause damage to the Earth. Whatever the case, we now know that if there was a star within some radius of the Earth, call it a thousand light years, that if it did go supernova, it could extinguish all life on Earth. So we know supernovas are dangerous. We just know that there are also no supernova anywhere near us that will be a danger to us. But the lesson here is that there must be phenomena that we will encounter in the future that are lurking out there right now for which we have no explanation and which could be as dangerous as a supernova. So what we need is lots and lots of knowledge now. We need to generate it as fast as we possibly can. And to do that, we need everyone out there producing wealth. How? Well, they need to be able to solve the problems they're interested in as fast as they can so they can move on to better and more interesting problems. And all of this takes energy and resources, and typically lots of it. We need to grow. I mean, as a civilization, as a planet, we need to grow. The economy needs to grow. We need more money. Because if civilization fails to grow, if the economy fails to grow, then knowledge will fail to grow fast enough to meet the challenges of a growing, hostile universe. Somehow, our rate of solving the most deadly problems must exceed the rate at which they confront us. But that latter rate is not knowable. We cannot know how fast and of what sort the problems of the coming years, or even days, will be. So we must take David Deutsch's advice. We need a stance of problem solving, not problem avoidance. We cannot avoid problems. We cannot avoid people who decide to suddenly and unexpectedly become violent. So we need a means of defence. We cannot avoid new strains of viruses and bacteria that could kill us. So we need a means of quickly finding antidotes when they do appear. We cannot avoid the next disaster that is found to be affecting our oceans or air, so we need a means to reverse the change. And we cannot avoid might appear next in the sky, so we need people and institutions engaged in studying the world so we can quickly and cheaply determine if that might be harmful or not and how to reduce the harm. And all of this is to say we need lots and lots of resources and energy to fuel our problem solving. Growth is what's needed not stagnation. Those who argue for smaller populations or smaller economies because they are parochially concerned about their own tiny neighbourhoods, even when the tiny neighbourhood is planet-sized, or parochially concerned about a particular problem at a particular instance in time, such as right now, 
fail to understand that we cannot protect ourselves by hibernating on the earth or even in one small corner of it or in a little room inside of our house for too long. People need to be out there earning money to create an economy and create wealth such that we can overcome the problems of tomorrow. We can't protect ourselves, let alone our families, endangered species or the environment because as melodramatic as it might sound, it must be the case that the day of cosmological reckoning is coming. A problem we have not yet foreseen out of the clear blue sky or perhaps the deep blue sea or perhaps a China wet market that could exterminate us all. It's happened to countless species before us. It could be a solar flare, it could be an asteroid, it could be a cosmological event, or it could be a microscopic one that threatens all life, or perhaps just ours. Great extinctions have happened many, many times before. Why should we be so special? Well, only in one way, by creating the knowledge to swiftly deal with the hostile universe and what it throws at us. And to do this takes wealth, which is the capacity to transform the universe into what we want. Or as David Deutsch defines the term with more precision, the repertoire of physical transformations that we would be capable of causing. Wealth requires turning resources into widgets, technological solutions, and it requires turning useless materials into resources. And that step takes knowledge, but it must happen quickly. Not so quickly as to carelessly cast aside all caution, but quickly enough that progress in science is matched by progress in philosophy, the knowing of when to pursue some course rather than the alternatives. Some people have always attempted to use science against science by arguing that in biology there is such a thing as carrying capacity or some analogous idea, the finite number of organisms that some area of land or volume of space can support given the finite food, water or other resources available. So the argument goes, because this lake is only so big, it can support only so many fish. And so it must be with people. Tasmania is only so many square kilometres, so it must be able to support only some limited number of people. But this is false. Science changes those numbers continuously. As we learn more about how to support more people, so the carrying capacity increases. People are unique. Yet prominent thinkers and public intellectuals since mathematician Thomas Malthus in 1798 have argued that the carrying capacity for humans on our planets is limited, and they have always, always been proved wrong. Malthus made his prediction based upon a rigorous mathematical analysis of the growth of human population. He rightly knew that that was exponential, compared to the production of food, which he observed was linear. Exponential functions, as we've learned, outrace linear ones, and so it seemed mathematically watertight that sooner or later, Malthus predicted in the 1930s, that humankind would reach the tipping point where famine would proliferate across the globe. Things would get worse, he argued. Upheavals, starvation, and perhaps finally extinction would come for our species as we were unable to simply appreciate the logic that a finite planet could not support a forever growing population. Of course, Malthus made this prediction over a century before the harbour process was discovered. The harbour process being the idea that hydrogen and nitrogen gases could be used to create ammonia and so artificial fertiliser could be used to make previously barren land useful as farmland. And he made the prediction before modern irrigation and genetically engineered crops. In short, he attempted to predict the content of future scientific discoveries. And so his prediction was, there'd be none. But we know knowledge can continue to grow if people continue to solve problems as we always have. It's what we do, it's what we're best at. We are, as David Deutsch explains, universal problem solvers. Whatever the problem, if it's interesting enough, it can be solved and we will solve it if we try. But the lesson of the parable of Malthus has been slow to be learned by our culture. Indeed, it seems never to have been learned, no matter how many prophets of doom are argued in just the same way. There is a public intellectual of sorts in Australia called Dick Smith. And he was, he was awarded Australian of the Year, by the way, a few years ago free services to the community, but he argues precisely the same way that Malthus does. He calls endless growth idiocy. And I think we had um, Greta Thunberg talk about uh, uh, dreams or something, uh, delusions or something like that, um, some sort of pejorative term um, applied to this endless growth. I'm arguing for endless growth. These people call it idiocy. So Dick Smith wrote in an article that no one can confidently predict where we will find the food, energy, water and resources needed to supply even the basic needs of so many people. And he's right about that. 
No one can predict what new scientific discoveries tomorrow will bring. That would be prophecy. But equally, no one can predict, confidently or not, that the equivalent of the Arbor process won't be uncovered by a chemist working diligently behind a computer screen or in a lab which would see even deserts become fertile places to grow food. Turning barren wastelands into gorgeously green crops is hardly a challenge that is beyond us. You might even choose to use solar power to green the desert. You can Google examples of agriculture in the Negev Desert in Israel. Uh, that's what you can do. You can turn deserts into green pasture lands if you're optimistic about problems. What's regarded as wisdom today may be foolishness tomorrow. Once, it was known, it was known that penicillin should be used to cure bacterial infections. Today, that could be considered terrible foolishness, given how many other antibiotics there are more properly suited to infection than penicillin ever was. One day it could be the case that resistant strains of bacteria make all penicillin stocks in the world rather useless. So what is a resource today may not be a resource tomorrow. Problems evolve as indeed knowledge does, because the world is not static and people are constantly making progress at a rate that is faster or slower depending upon the conditions they find themselves in. What changes useless matter into a valuable resource is knowledge and that must continue to grow. And I would argue that things that cause the slowing down of the economy, slow down the rate of knowledge creation and problem solving and slow down our ability to tackle the problems of tomorrow and could in the long run, be our undoing. It is the pace of knowledge creation that is important. This does not mean to carelessly cast aside all of our concerns about any immediate danger, such as COVID-19. It means that we have to allow individuals to assess the threat. And if you do not wish to assess, if you assess the threat and you regard the threat as to be too great, then lock yourself inside, keep yourself safe, but allow others who have a different assessment to go about their business and to continue to allow the economy to flourish and for knowledge to be created so that the problems of tomorrow can be tackled more effectively. The growth of knowledge depends upon intelligently designed creativity. That's to say, the unique capacity of human minds. As Karl Popper has taught us, we're all equal in our infinite ignorance. What is before us all is a constantly growing horizon which brings into focus ever more clearly the reality we find ourselves in. But we need help. We can't do it alone, so we need each other. More people, not less. Of course, not so many that we all begin to suffer, but no one is suggesting that. More people, like me, saying all of this, and you listening to this, have the wealth, the electricity, the energy, and the information to create knowledge that we need. So let us grow wealth and populations so that we may grow knowledge. Knowledge forms a kind of web where solutions that are found by one person in one area can have a profound effect upon the problems encountered by someone else in a completely different area. For though we cannot know what sort it will be, we do know that one day a problem is coming that will either newly compete with or perhaps dwarf our present concerns about climate change, COVID-19, terrorism, or whether AI, AI will take our jobs. Problems are inevitable. And when that day comes, that day of the new problem, dwarfing all of our others. We want to hope that we have put all the resources at our disposal into the hands of the problem solvers of our planet and not imprison them in their homes. For problems are soluble, but only if we have the knowledge.